Scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 13 to 14, 16 to 18, and 25 to 33. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Taitaira named Lydia, a dealer in purple clothes. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her honors by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. All right. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison door open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoner had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The word of the Lord. Uh, for those of you that have been uh, with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been uh, taking a look at uh, who we are as a church and who we desire to be going forward uh, and we, we've done so over the last two weeks by looking at our vision statement, which has been to know and to show the love of Christ. Uh, and what we want to do is continue that, uh, that series of looking at who we are by shifting gears a little bit, by looking at the ways that we are going to hopefully, prayerfully accomplish that vision. Uh, and we're going to be doing so by looking at our core values. Uh, these core values uh, and their definitions you can find more fully uh, on our website, but these are the five, and these are the things that we'll be considering. Uh, number one, 
We believe in personal conversion. Uh, Number two, we believe in spiritual formation. Three, community involvement. Four, mercy and justice. And five, unity. And what we're going to do over the next five weeks is each week take a look at each one of these values to better understand uh, what we mean by each of them. And my hope is really this, that as we look at each of these core values, we might better understand uh, and have a a better tangible understanding of uh, who we are as a church, what it means to be part of Redeemer East Harlem, but also so that we might know individually what our role should be in accomplishing the things that we believe God's calling us to do, which is to, again, know and show the love of Christ here in East Harlem. And so this week... Let's take a look at that first core value, which is personal conversion. And let me read to you the actual statement of what we mean. That we as a church, we are a church rather, that cares about people personally knowing the love of God in Christ. We want to connect people to God so that their whole lives might be converted and changed by the gospel. This is a conviction intangibly means if we are able to do this, this is what it means to have a faithful gospel witness. Because here's what we need to uh, understand and see, is that we cannot uh, understand the work of Jesus, Uh, we can't understand the thoughts of the New Testament writers, and we can't understand the ongoing work of the church without understanding that the gospel changes lives. Fundamentally, this is what the gospel does. If you are a Christian... The gospel is what is changing you from glory to glory. Uh, If you are not a Christian, know that the gospel is for you that you might know the fullness of God's love for you. The gospel is for everyone. It changes everyone who believes in the work of Jesus. And here in Acts 16, uh, we see a really condensed picture of how that is true, of what actually happens when people come in contact with the great love of Jesus, known as the gospel. Here in this passage, we see the breadth and the depth of how Christ changes lives, uh, and we also see why the gospel uh, is truly a hope that is for everyone. So let me give you some context of what we're seeing here in this passage In this passage, we essentially have three mini-stories that are recorded. We have the story of Lydia, we have the story of a slave girl, and then we have the story of the jailer. Now, each one of these uh, people uh, were people that Paul and Silas met on their missionary journey uh, through Macedonia. Uh, And each of these stories shows us something really important and significant about how the gospel works. Uh, And so what I want to do, I want to take a look at three things in particular that come out and that jump out uh, from these stories. Specifically this, that the gospel is for all peoples, that the gospel is for all people, and then that the gospel is for you. So the gospel is for all peoples, people, and for you. First... The gospel is for all peoples. Uh, so if you've, if you've known me or been around, you know that I have one particular argument for the Christian faith that is particularly um, compelling to me, and that is simply this, that the gospel, that Christianity, applies to all cultures and ethnicities 
and time periods unlike any other religion or philosophy that, is, that could ever be compared to Christianity. There's nothing that even comes close to the ways in which Christianity is able to impact different people's cultures, ethnicities, and so on. And what's been particularly, why that's been particularly striking for me uh, is that, again, you may know this about me, but I come from a very diverse family background with a lot of different cultures that have been meshed together into, into my family. Um, and I have seen up close and personal how the gospel impacts people from different cultures. I've seen it in the, the, uh, the breadth of my family. But I've also studied this uh, academically in college. I was an intercultural studies major. I also did intercultural studies research in grad school. And this is essentially a field that incorporates anthropology and sociology and comparative religions. And so I have seen both, per, both personally and studied um, academically the applicability of the gospel on all peoples and cultures. This is one of the reasons why it's such a powerful affirmation of the gospel message for me. And when you look here in this passage in Acts 16, uh, you see this to be true. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at the different people that Paul and Silas speak to. First, you have Lydia, who is from Thyatira, which means she was Asian. Uh, you have a slave girl who, in verse uh, 16, uh, which I'm not sure that we actually printed there, but it says that she, in some places, it says that she had a spirit of divination. Now, that word divination uh, is actually a, a word that is translated from a Greek word that was referencing the Greek religion of Apollo. Uh, and so this girl was likely Greek. Uh, and then you have the jailer who, of course, was most likely Roman, as many former Roman soldiers used to take jobs like this. And so you have someone from Asia, someone from Greece, and someone who would be, have been Roman. And I'll tell you why this matters. It matters because, again, compared to every other major theological and philosophical ideology, the Christian faith has no cultural ties, but easily weaves itself into different cultures and people groups. Most other world religions uh, and philosophies are very centered on specific parts of the world or specific cultures. Even secularism, humanism, which assumes itself to be objective, is actually very captive to Western culture. But Christianity is not like this. It does not itself have a culture or is not, and is not culturally captive. Uh, the gospel is uniquely able to weave itself into and be expressed by various cultures because it is for all peoples, which is why it has spread around the world in the way that it has over history. Now, again, I've, I've argued some of this previously, so I won't get into all of it. And if you really want my argumentation fully on this. There's a, a sermon that's on our podcast, which you can find at all podcast outlets, um, on Ephesians 2, uh, where we, we unpack this more. But in essence, there have been some that would claim that Christianity is so strong globally uh, because of things like colonialism, but we know this to fundamentally not be the case because 
Christianity over the course of church history and even now is growing in places where people have been able to take the message of the gospel and weave it into the cultural fabric of their people. Christianity honors the culture and the language and the customs of all people, of course, bringing them under the authority of the kingdom of God. But it's amazing to me to watch and see where Christianity is exploding and where our eyes ought to be turned to when we want to see the future of the Christian faith. It is no longer going to be in the West. It is going to be in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia in particular. These are the places where it's growing. I, I, if maybe you've seen in the news uh, the Chinese church, and we've prayed for the Chinese church numerous times uh, already, under new persecutions, and yet it's still one of the fastest-growing churches in the world. Because the gospel message is not culturally tied, it weaves itself. Nothing else comes close to the diversity and the longevity of the Christian faith across different diverse people groups. And if a religion is going to be universally true, it must be universally applicable, regardless of where one comes from. You know, one of the fun facts about me, uh, one of the great privileges that I've experienced in my life uh, is that I've been to every continent on the planet except Antarctica, which I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I've been on every other continent. And I'm very grateful that I've been able to do that. But one of the other things that I've, that I've been grateful for is on those different continents, I've had the opportunity to worship with people and experience the vibrancy of their own cultural expressions of worship. And maybe some of you have also experienced that type of thing. I don't know them. Um, I sometimes, I don't even know what they're doing uh, but I do know that they're worshiping the same Jesus I do. And even though I may not speak their language or eat the same food or dress in the same way or even think in similar terms, they're my brother, they're my sister, because they too have experienced a personal conversion as a result of what Jesus has done. This is why the gospel is for all peoples, because it impacts all different people groups, all different cultures. Uh, the second thing, though, is not only is the gospel for all peoples, the gospel's also for all people. And what do I mean by that? Well, look at, uh, again, these stories that we see that, uh, that Luke, who wrote Acts, presented to us. We have very different people here in this passage from radically different backgrounds and life experiences. First, you have Lydia. Interesting facts about her. Uh, so verse 14 tells us that she was a dealer of purple cloth, um, verse 15, which is not there in your bulletin, says that she owned a business, that she owned a home. Uh, and also, it's important to know that purple dye was extremely expensive and very rare and was really only reserved for the elites, which means she was probably very wealthy. In a lot of ways, she was a Manhattanite fashion designer in many ways. But Paul and Silas found her by the river listening to scripture being read. And it says that she was a God worshiper, which was essentially a non-Jewish convert who worshiped the God of Israel, which meant that she was quite religious and seeking truth in the Jewish scriptures. And I wonder, do you know anyone like that? Do you know anyone who may be wealthy or successful who has attained probably more than they could have ever imagined or dreamed, and yet, in the end, 
They are still searching for something to satisfy them. What's beautiful is that God sees her, sees Lydia, and says, this gospel is for you, you wealthy, successful, spiritually seeking Lydia. But then you also have a slave girl, second person that we see there. She was a young woman who was both spiritually and physically oppressed. She was spiritually oppressed by an evil spirit, and she was physically oppressed by her captors who sought to profit off of her. These men acted much like a pimp would toward a prostitute. But again, here in verse 18, it's interesting what happens. Paul, when confronted with this girl, he commands the evil spirit out of her in Jesus' name. And what happens next is extraordinary because it shows the extent to which the power of Jesus transforms, brings real conversion. Because immediately the girl is liberated, and I saved you some of this. You can go back and read uh, Acts 16 more fully. It's not written there. Um, But she immediately uh, is freed from this spiritual liberation, the spirit that tormented her leaves. And what's interesting is that this liberation, this spiritual liberation, ended up not just being spiritual, but it also resulted in her physical liberation as well. And we know this to be true because if you read the rest of the story, her oppressors freak out. They are furious that they can no longer control this girl and no longer profit off of her. Pimps have a way of freaking out when they lose control. But what's amazing and beautiful about this story is that this gospel was not just for wealthy Lydia. This gospel was also for this used and marginalized slave girl and others like her. The gospel is for the drug addict and for the prostitute, for the slave, those tormented in their souls, for those who are abused, those who are used by others who only care about personal gain or personal pleasure. It is for the oppressed. Now this informs, I think, a lot about how Christians ought to view oppression and injustice. This girl was set free, both spiritually and physically. And it's important for us to know that physical oppression is always tied to spiritual oppression. Always. For Christians who are fighting physical oppression, that means that you are inevitably fighting a spiritual battle. And I'll tell you why. Because oppression and injustice do two things. First thing, Christian theology tells us that at all stages of life, we possess the image of God as God's creation, which means that we all have intrinsic worth and intrinsic value, and oppression of all kinds denies the image of God in others, which is paganism. It is heresy. But the other thing that happens is that when a person puts themselves in a position of the oppressor, they truly do believe themselves in some level to be some kind of God-like entity who is able to dole out judgment. And though when God doles out judgment, it is always righteous, but when humanity puts themselves into that type of position, 
it often results in oppression. Believing oneself, believing others rather, to be of lower stature and therefore to be treated in less than worthy ways, the position of oppressor is idolatrous, which again, it's paganism, it's heresy. And so fighting physical oppression is always a spiritual battle. When abolitionists fought chattel slavery, they were fighting a spiritual battle. When Diedrich Bonhoeffer stood against the Nazi regimes and and those that were with him, they were fighting a spiritual battle. When Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists were fighting the physical oppressions of Jim Crow, it was a spiritual battle. Those fighting sex slavery, as we've just prayed, those fighting sex slavery, even right now, they are fighting spiritual battles in all places where the image of God in others is denied. It is a spiritual battle being waged. And until Jesus comes and crushes the head of oppression and injustice, Christians must be champions of the weak and the powerless, the unloved, the unseen. And God here is saying, this gospel is for you, you unloved, unseen, oppressed slave girl. And then finally, we have the story of the jailer. Uh, again, the jailer was likely a, Ro- a former Roman soldier. This would have been common. Uh, but he was also a proud man. And you can see that in verse 27. See, he was responsible to uh, keep Paul and Silas safe while they were imprisoned. And when he'd thought that they had likely escaped, his first instinct was to kill himself. Because he knew he would be executed for allowing them to be escaped, or for allowing them to escape. I mean, this was a brutal shame and honor culture where mercy and grace were not virtues, uh, but rather mercy would have been viewed as weakness. And so again in verse 27, to avoid that shame of public execution, he prepares to kill himself instead. Now, what's interesting uh, about this passage, commentators note how interesting it is that Paul and Silas actually didn't escape. Uh, The reason why that's interesting um, is because the last time we saw something similar to this, uh, this scenario, was back in Acts 12, where Peter is actually freed from prison by an angel who comes in, takes off the shackles, and literally walks Peter out of prison. However, we don't have that here. We don't have an angel, but we have an earthquake, which presumably did two things. Again, commentators note and they draw out that likely what happened here is that the shackles that were attached uh, to Paul and Silas were anchored to a stone wall, uh, and that when the, the, uh, the earthquake came, it likely detached those chains from the wall, leaving the shackles still attached to them, and that the earthquake likely dismantled the door which is why the door came open. So that was one thing. But the other thing was that the earthquake was loud, and it wakes up the guard. Now, why would God do it this way? Especially when we've seen God do it another way. Why not sneak them out all stealth-like? Well, what is it that this man, full of fear, shame, what is it that he needed? I mean, he needed a tangible experience of God's grace and God's mercy. And if they had just walked out, he never would have experienced it. I mean, is that even what we all want? 
when we are weighted down by shame. We want to know that we have not been abandoned. We want to know that God has not left us. And Paul and Silas remaining in the cell and then presenting the gospel to, this, to him was God's goodness in tangible form, specifically tailored for this man, this guard. And so here we have God saying, this gospel is for you, you proud, shame-filled, fearful jailer. The gospel is for all kinds of people, the rich, the powerful, the oppressed, the fearful, the shame-filled. The gospel is for everyone. But not only is the gospel for all peoples or all types of people, you need to know that the gospel is also for you. Now, if you've, if you've noticed, I've, I've said much about the gospel. Uh, but if you've noticed, I haven't really articulated what I mean by the gospel. What exactly is the gospel message? Well, there are probably various ways of defining it, but it's important to consider how would Paul have articulated the gospel message? What is it exactly that was told to Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer? And what is it exactly that has produced a 2,000-year movement of the gospel that has no sign of slowing down in the slightest? And why does any of that matter to us? Well, I want to consider one of the ways that Paul himself defines the gospel. Famous verse, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. You know, it's nice to say and it's nice to argue that the gospel can be woven into all different types of cultures. It's nice to say that the gospel gives hope to all different kinds of people. But what is it exactly that makes the gospel life-changing? It's not its broad appeal. What makes the gospel ultimately life-changing is that it's the power of God unto salvation. This is what ultimately the gospel does is that it fundamentally, fundamentally changes our lives. For Lydia, the power of God that brought salvation, her personal conversion meant salvation from striving for validation, striving for success through religious efforts. For Jesus, lived a perfect life for her. This was the power of God. For salvation. For the slave girl, the power of God for salvation, her personal conversion meant hope that one day oppression will be crushed. For Jesus is matchlessly powerful and will one day crush the head of all evil oppressions. For the jailer, the power of God that brings salvation, his personal conversion meant salvation from the crushing weight of his failure. For in Jesus, we know that Jesus took to the cross the consequences of his failure. The death that is required because of that failure was no longer his, but rather Jesus took that penalty upon himself 
this was the power of God for salvation. Redeemer East Harlem, for those of you here, the power of God that brings salvation was not just for them, it is also for you. It is for your personal conversion. It's for your life to be changed. And I wonder, are you like Lydia? Do you resonate with this idea of being successful, maybe more successful than you could ever imagine? And yet all that success and all of that striving has not yet satisfied the longing that is within you. Or are you spiritually seeking, striving with religious fervor? I want you to know that the gospel is for you. Rest and trust in Jesus. Or maybe you identify in some way with a slave girl. Do you resonate with being spiritually tormented or maybe even physically oppressed? Do you feel abused and used and unloved like no one sees you? You know, that reminds me of an Old Testament story of Hagar, a woman who had been raped, abused, rejected, abandoned. And in her pain, do you know the name that she gave God? She called him the God who sees me. I don't know why I'm so emotional today. Sorry. But if you feel unloved, if you feel unseen, maybe even oppressed, know that the gospel is for you. Cry out to Jesus. Or maybe you feel like the jailer. Have you never experienced grace and mercy? Maybe your life has, for whatever reason, you have allowed it to be defined by your mistakes. Or maybe you have an obsession with meeting the expectations of other people. Would you rather die than have to face the shame of failure? God in Christ is meeting you with grace and compassion, not abandoning you to the consequences of your failure. For on the cross, Jesus takes that failure upon himself. This is the gospel for you. And so I just leave you with a couple final thoughts and challenges. If you're here uh, and you have not yet believed this gospel message, would you trust in Jesus today and acknowledge your need for him? Trust that this gospel is life transforming, that it converts all areas of our life. And if today that is something that you are ready to do, to trust in Jesus, I'd also encourage you to let me know. I'd love to talk with you more about what that could mean. If you are here a believer in this gospel message, I wonder, have you forgotten the power of that message? I know I do regularly. And do you need to be reminded, re-enthralled by the power of that salvation? Last thing. Yeah, I didn't have space to print out the, the entire passage. Um, but after Lydia's conversion, it says that her whole household was baptized. After the slave girl was freed, the town went into an uproar because the testimony of what 
had happened spread like wildfire. After the jailer came to faith, verse, verse 34 tells us that his whole household came to faith. And I draw this out as our final thought. This is why that's important. If you are a Christian, the gospel is not just for you, it is also for everyone you know. What makes the gospel so powerful so often is that one person's conversion often becomes the foundation for another person's conversion. We see this all throughout this chapter here. And one of the reasons why God has made you aware of the work of Jesus is so that now you might be able to help someone else become aware of that work of Jesus. And so I wonder, do you know a Lydia? Do you know a slave girl? Do you know a jailer? Someone similar. I encourage you today to be re-enthralled by that gospel message, but to also be encouraged that God sends us to take this message of hope, the story of redemption, to all who will listen. And so I encourage you to consider what that might mean for you to take the hope that you have been given and extend the story of your own personal conversion to those who might also need that hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who saves, that your power is made evident in our salvation. God, I, I often wonder uh, why you have accomplished such great things uh, for me. Uh, I will probably never have a complete and full answer, but Lord, I cling to that hope, I cling to that truth, and I pray that all of us here might also do the same that we would consider deeply what it is that you have done for us. And may that spur us on to not keep that hope to ourselves, but to bring that hope to others. Others who are in need of this personal conversion, seeing their whole life changed. Give us the power, the boldness, the wisdom to know how to do that well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.